Jeff Atwood is the co-founder of Stack Overflow and Stack Exchange, the founder of Discourse and the author of the popular blog Coding Horror. It's hard to understate the impact he's had on the software industry. It's safe to say that most programmers use daily the tools he's created to share knowledge, exchange ideas and solve problems. As well as being an extremely experienced software developer, Jeff is fascinated by the people side of programming and how we as software developers interact and learn. In this interview, we talk about how Stack Overflow started, his experiences with blogging, his observations of online communities and motivation and learning. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy listening to Jeff Atwood. Hi Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me. Um, I'd like to start with your blog, codinghorror.com. I was reading the About Me section earlier today and I came across this quote which says, In 2004, I began this blog. I don't mean to be overly dramatic, but it changed my life. Everything that comes after was made possible by this blog. So I was wondering if you could start by explaining what you mean by that. Well, yeah, that's a true statement because until I started sort of publicizing my thoughts and you know, what I was doing in development, like I was kind of, I don't want to say stuck is too strong a word, but I didn't really have a good future direction. I didn't really know where I was going, but sharing that stuff in public gave me all these other options, um, gave me a lot of feedback, brought me to the attention of a lot of other people. Um, and I became a big believer in sort of public by default, which you kind of see in the internet, although there are also downsides to this approach. It's not free as we're also seeing at scale when you have millions of people all talking, things can get quite weird. Um, mm. But if you look at open source, if you look at software, this idea of doing things in public, um, and even like prosaic simple examples, like the service Flickr, which now seems ancient and almost irrelevant, actually because it got bought by Yahoo, <laughs> which is mm. a sure path to irrelevance if there ever was one. Uh, but the big innovation was that the idea was normally we upload photos from your camera. You know, back when we carried actual cameras, not phones. I don't know if anyone remembers that. Uh, you would upload your photos to a website, and the photos would all be private by default. Well, Flickr turned that on its head and said, no, let's just do public by default. And that was actually its core innovation. And hmm. a lot of services looked that way. Like Twitter was, you know, those little status messages, but done in public. Um, so there's a lot of power in this do things in public, not everything, obviously. I mean, there's a lot of mm. things you don't want to be public, but this idea of public by default is quite profound and can have really excellent impact on you. I mean, because think about it in a work perspective. If nobody knows what you're doing, if you're if you're a really, really talented employee doing amazing work, but nobody knows about it, did you really do that work? Like, did you get all the benefit from that work? And you can, of course, take this too far. You could be the super loud person who's always like, look at me, look at what I did. <laughs> And as I said, there are downsides, but if you're going to err on the side, uh, one of these sides, I think you should err on the side of being a little bit noisy, not to the point that it's annoying because nobody likes that, but don't be, you know, a person in a room doing stuff that nobody knows about because how are you going to get the benefits from doing all that stuff, right? So is this something you thought about before you started your blog or something you've kind of realized since then? So what was your, what was your initial motivation for starting your blog? I think I started to notice that blogs weren't just personal diaries of stuff that didn't matter. I was getting like really good Google results from blogs that were useful. I was like, wow, this is actually useful. This isn't, you know, someone's private stream of consciousness 
noise. This is, they're sharing artifacts that I actually find useful. And I was really inspired by that. And I was like, oh, this works. Because I wasn't like one of the first bloggers or by any means. I think to be one of the first bloggers, you start in like 99 or even earlier. <laughs> I started yeah. in like 2004. So even though that's relatively early, it wasn't like I was a first wave innovator. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was highly skeptical uh, of this whole scene and then became convinced when I saw it working. You know, it worked. So I was like, let's do this. And when you talk about uh, seeing high quality blog posts, um, how do you find the kind of trade-off between frequency and quality? And, and where do you get your ideas from? Well, I think there's always something interesting going on. I think you should have the attitude that like, there's so many interesting things in the world that even if you wrote every day, you couldn't make it happen. Um, I think you have to view it more as exercise, where it's something that, that help, that's helpful to you to do. It's a little bit of effort. You have to like make an effort to do it, not every day, but set a schedule. I think that's really important and kind of stick to your schedule. It's the same rule you'd have for exercise, honestly. Like you got to be consistent-ish um, and do it long enough to get the benefit. You can't just write one blog post and expect to change the world, right? Like that's not how this works. Unless you're very, very lucky or extremely talented, which most of us aren't. And I'm not, right? I'm not that talented, right? Like it's it's a function of effort, right? You got to put in the effort to get the benefit. You got to, you know, work at it. Um, Mm. that's, that's probably the first thing I tell people is, you know, set a schedule, something attainable, not like I will blog every day. That's maybe not realistic, but maybe once a week, I don't know, once a month, I don't know, something. I mean, and and honestly, like I've fallen off the wagon hugely (laughs) with regards to (laughs) blogging, uh, but I have a lot going on as does everyone at the moment. Right. So I have an excuse, but you know, that's historically the advice I've given and it does work. Very cool. And of course your blog is, is, is where Stack Overflow started. So can you tell the story of, of how it was created? Uh, yes. So the blog was getting more and more popular as I wrote more and more. And I, I eventually turned on RS, RSS feed uh, polling through, um, I forget the name of the service. It's all, still alive, barely out there. And there was like 40,000 people subscribed. And I was like, wow, that's like a small city. You know, a small city of people are listening <laughs> to me talk or reading what I'm writing. It's like, wow, that's amazing. But I felt also like a responsibility to do something with that energy. Like, what can I do? You know, hmm. um, it's one thing to just show up to your job and do your job. It's another to like take this ball of energy you've been given and, and push it forward and do something with it. And I wasn't sure what that was. So I was reaching out to people online that I respected and a number of people I respected. And one of them was Joel Spolsky. And Joel is a great ideas person. And he had essentially the, the core idea for what was Stack Overflow. And I loved it. I was like, oh, that's a great idea. And uh, then we just sort of ran with it. But that was the impetus. Like, what can I do with this energy? Like, what could we build? that would be useful mm-hmm. to people beyond, you know, listening to one person talk. I mean, there's a limit. I mean, being a talking head, essentially, right? Like I'm a, have very mixed feelings about that whole line of work where you're a professional talker. Uh, you got to yeah. actually build things too. You know, you can't just be the person who talks about stuff all the time. I mean, there's in, I mean, plus two, there's endless commentary. If you want to just hear commentary on current events, good Lord, just turn on the internet, right? Like, yeah. You got to build stuff, man. So I think yeah. that was the relation. Like, let's let's build something, you know? Okay, so you built Stack Overflow. And of course, you already had some kind of user base because of the users from your blog who were already behind it. But how long did it take for it to kind of properly gain popularity? Uh, well, the Stack Overflow, um, I think we did a good job of... We came up with a sort of a Venn diagram of like like sites that we liked that thought worked well. And you can search, you can find this Venn diagram. It's in my blog post. It's a combination of sort of dig in Reddit, uh, blogs, Wikipedia, 
uh, and forums. That was the Venn diagram. Those are the things that we're capturing elements from. And Stack Overflow is in the center of those Venn diagrams. Like we're going to capture aspects of all these uh, that we think are working and turn that into Stack Overflow. So it turns out, I think we did a good job on design. Now, that's not to say the design was perfect. I think in retrospect, the design is very competitive because my observation was that programmers are very competitive, but not everybody's in a competition. So there's a whole class of users that are kind of turned off by competing. And I get that. Um, mm. That's, for better or worse, kind of was baked into the original design. Uh, it's if, if, if you're very anti-competitive systems, then it's not going to be your favorite thing, for sure. Um, and, you know, what can I say? Like, it's it's hard to go back in time and reinvent things. <laughs> sure. Uh, and it works really well for that, to be fair. Like, it produces amazing artifacts. But mm -hmm. it takes a certain discipline in the system to get those artifacts. Like, we don't want extraneous discussion. We don't want kibitzing. We don't want people hanging out and saying, hello, goodbye, how are you doing? <laughs> I mean, not because we don't like that stuff. I mean, and it's funny because people look at Stackover like, oh, you hate hello. You're terrible people. It's like, well, no, we don't hate hello. It's just <laughs> not really necessary for what we're doing here. And it becomes yeah. like a judgment system. So it's it's challenging to navigate that whole mindset of like, mm. how dare you? I'm like, uh, well, <laughs> I don't know. I was just trying to build a really effective system. I wasn't trying to build a system for people to hang out and socialize, right? Like, Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, know. it has this perception that like, yeah, it can be like a, a kind of fairly strict and perhaps unfriendly place, particularly for beginners. But obviously, in some ways, that's necessary for, you know, high quality content and accessibility. Um, what what right. were your thoughts on how much of that was design? Well, I think initially we were dealing with a population of pretty engaged users that were pretty advanced. Mm. And I think as you get bigger, your audience gets bigger. It's the same thing that happened, you know, Facebook or Twitter. Like you become sort of a general purpose service. Um, I think initially we were reaching just sort of the core developers um, that kind of got it and knew what was going on. But then you start reaching like less experienced developers. And then you start reaching totally new developers like who are just starting out. And it's not a good system for absolute beginners. It was never intended for I shall teach you how to program. And mm -hmm. some people think that's, they're like, oh, this is so I can learn how to program from scratch. I'm like, uh, no, that's not, I mean, maybe like if you are very, very talented and okay with competition and stuff and, and, but it's not intended for every single use case. And as you get bigger, it's like people try to force you into, well, you're so big now that you must work for every single use case. I'm like, well, okay, I get that. Like we need to adapt the system, but it's hard to go back and say, you should be Khan Academy. And I'm like, mm. no. <laughs> um, like that was never the goal, right? It's really hard to bolt that on after facts. Like now we're Khan Academy. Um, but I have warmed up over the years to the idea of sort of a beginner based stack overflow that has different rules and a different way of operating. We even see that because stack overflow is part of the stack exchange network. There's not just one site. There's actually a hundred sites. Um, the biggest one, the sun is stack overflow, but there are lots of other sites, super user, um, um, you know, server fault. There's lots hmm. of different stack exchange sites that follow the same rule set, um, which works really well for topics that are science-based and data-based and can be hmm. strict about what they are doing. So that's kind of the challenge. But even on the Stack Overflow network, we saw sites, let me give you an example, like English language. There was an English language, there still is, site, but it was really for experts in the English language. And they had an influx of users who were like, well, I don't know English very well. And I just hmm. need basic clarification of basic English rules. And all the experts were like, well, this is ultimately not interesting to us because we already know how English works. We want to talk about the subtleties of English. So they eventually split into two sites, uh, English language and learners, and then mm. English, which I think is actually correct. So the system itself was producing the desired outcome, which is you need two different sites for this, 
one oriented towards beginners and one oriented towards sort of intermediate to advanced users. Um, and I still believe that. And in fact, I f came full 360 on this. Initially, I did not um, want or think we should build that, but more, more and more, I think they should. I don't think mm. they will, but I think there need to be two distinct sites there, just like on the English side. It's the same exact analogy. Um, and it's played out multiple times. It played out with the math stuff. Like you have, we had a math site called Math Overflow, which was like for fields medalists. I mean, you're talking like elite mathematicians, mm. like really, really good, awesome people. And then just like, okay, math problems, right? These are mm. different audiences and have different needs. So trying to shoehorn them all into one site is just, I don't know how that's going to work, right? Like I fundamentally just don't believe as a product person, you can build one product that can do all those things. I mean, mm. some people think that's possible. I'm just not one of them. <laughs> Interesting. So, I mean, yeah, your experience with Stack Overflow and Stack Exchange, and of course now you're working on Discourse, um, it means that you're basically in the in the business of programmers communicating. Um, that's an area you have a lot of expertise in. So, how how do you build a community? How do you build an online community, um, especially if it's one that perhaps relies on knowledge sharing um, and it needs like a critical master function? Well, it certainly helps. One criticism of Stack Overflow was that Joel and I had these big built-in audiences that we could point at the thing. That is true. <laughs> but it's also true that they would have just bounced off that thing and said, this is a giant waste of time yeah. if it sucked, right? So it was a combination of two things, having an audience and having something useful. Now, useful is the operative word here because useful is a big thing in Stack Overflow. Is this actually a useful thing to con contribute to like the world, right? Uh, does it help only one person versus does it help 10, 20, 100 people? Like are problems reusable essentially? You know what I mean? So hmm. it does help to have big initial audiences. And I think you should try to ally yourself with people that have audiences because, you know, if you can build an alliance that helps yourself and that person, it's win-win, right? Like person with big audience gets this really cool tool that actually solves an actual problem that their audience has is nice. That's the best kind of synergy, you know, like corporate synergy, right? Like, uh, and I think we had that. We built a, a, a very effective tool, had these audiences that were clamoring for a tool like this because of the sites, the site experts exchange. This comes up a lot, expert. Yeah, it's a long story, <laughs> which people don't even remember now, which is great. Like that's what victory looks like. Victory looks like people don't even remember the thing that you were competing against. That's what victory <laughs> looks like. They don't even remember, you know? And it wasn't like I was out to destroy them. It was just, we wanted to build a better mousetrap, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I think it, audience is a big, big deal. Like even in discourse where we try to guide people, there's like a setup wizard of like how to set up the site. and But you can't really get over the hurdle of like, how do you create a brand new community? Like how do you compete with Facebook, which has this built-in enormous community? Um, and yeah. that is actually an implicit goal of discourse is to, create something that isn't Facebook. Like, I don't really want, it, it's fine for Facebook to exist, but for Facebook to say, this is all that there is, is like terrifying to me. Uh, like this Facebook controls all of human consciousness, all of human discussion. Like that's <laughs> not really good for the world. Mm. Uh, yeah. So it can be challenging, right? You got to have like a clear utility to people and uh, sometimes just having famous people to kick it off. And then there's also this sense of, regulars. There's a lot of optimization and discourse around who are your regulars. I don't know if you remember the television show Cheers or any show, any bar show, really. Mm. Every bar is about the regulars, the people who come there yeah. every day. That's the core of that audience. If the, if the bar is, a, is, is a, an unpleasant place, it will be unpleasant because the regulars are unpleasant. If the bar is a fun place, that will be because the regulars are fun. 
you know, they control the culture and their appearance every day is kind of like how you set the tone for what the community is. So there's a lot of optimization mm-hmm. around who are your regulars? You know, are they sane people? Are they helpful people? Are they encouraging new people? Are they cranky? <laughs> there's a lot of subtlety to a lot of this. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say getting that core of regulars and you start with yourself, like you can, you and your buddy could be the first two regulars. Mm. And as you grow bigger, what, what do you think is it that motivates the regulars to come back and keep answering questions? Because obviously there's a lot of utility for people who want to ask questions and have their problems solved. But what do you think is it that motivates people to help others on a site like that? Well, I think you've cut, cut to a core difference, which is Q&A, pure Q&A, which is about I have a problem and I'm looking for an answer versus social sites. Now, in Stack Overflow, you explicitly said, look, this isn't for socializing. This is very strict. So that part is completely missing. And that's fine for certain topics. But for something like, for example, here's some sites on the Stack, Stack Exchange Network. There were a lot of experiments. Uh, there was a Lego site, which essentially failed. And there was a poker site, which essentially failed. But that makes sense because Lego and poker are much more about the social interaction than they are about, like, how do I do this Lego thing? Or what's the best poker hand? Or what's the strategy in this specific specific you know, poker hand situation. It's more about socializing and hanging out. And I think you have to, in discourse, we're very open to this. Like discourse is all about being social and hanging out. There doesn't have to be a purpose to it other than we're here and we like talking to each other. Like that could be the only reason that you're there and that's fine. So I view it as a percentages game. Like on Stack Overflow, like look, 90% of the stuff here should be useful, maybe even higher actually. That's why it's viewed as so strict. Whereas on Discourse, I'm like, look, you'll get about 10% of the stuff that's useful to the outside world or even people in your field, right? And that's okay because it's a numbers game, right? You're generating a thousand topics, right? Because mm. it's much more social. There's a lot more stuff going on. So that percentage isn't too bad in the big scheme of things. It's not really the goal, though. Nobody sets out with the goal of like, we're only going to produce stuff that ranks highly in Google. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's an SEO nightmare. Like, I don't even believe in that. Uh, what I'm saying is, you want to, the way to think of this is I want to produce things that are useful to other people. You may or may not want to do that. You might want to say, look, I only want to produce stuff that's useful to me and my group of regulars. But if you have a really awesome group of regulars, it turns out that they're, the stuff they're interested in turns out to be interesting to a lot of other people. So as you grow your group of regulars, you will naturally grow your audience if you have talented and interesting regulars. Cool. So um, perhaps a few more kind of general questions. Obviously, many programmers kind of have aspirations of starting their own companies or pursuing their ideas, and many do. Um, But obviously, you did Stack Overflow, Stack Exchange, Discourse. You write Coding Horror. Um, Joel Spolsky, after Stack Overflow, did Trello and many other things. Um, And I'm sure you've worked with many other people who might be termed like serial creators or entrepreneurs. Um, So my question is, what qualities have you noticed or spotted in people who create repeatedly and successfully? I think uh, for me, uh, I don't know exactly for Joel. Joel was a great ideas person. Like I love that Joel, he had a lot of great qualities, but I love that he came up with really interesting ideas. That wasn't really my strength. I'm more of an execution person. So I think for me, it's about dissatisfaction with the status quo, like the world can be better. 
you know, mm. we can build better tools than this. Like I was really, as an example, I was really deeply, everybody was upset at Experts Exchange because the way they ran was so scammy and it was like a used car sales lot and not the good kind. I don't know if there is any good kind <laughs> of used car sales, but it was the bad kind for sure. So there was deep mm. dissatisfaction with that. That was obvious. Uh, whereas on the forum software side, one of the reasons I did Discourse was, you know, people would come to me for advice and say, look, I'm going to do a startup and I don't know what to do. And like, tell me, what do you think of this? And my main reaction was, well, you know what? I think you should be asking your audience what they think of your product, your customers, your users, you know, your patrons, your, you know, friends, like the people that are using your product should be giving you feedback about your product and you should be listening to them, not me, the air quote expert, because I mean, I probably don't even know what it is you're trying to build, right? Am I in the audience for it? Like you're just, it's the wrong kind of authority. So the people that internalize this feedback said, oh, that's great feedback. How do I do that? And then I said, well, you have to install software that lets you talk to your users, right? And that's hmm. traditionally kind of a forum, right? And I looked at all the forum software and I was just ashamed. I was like deeply ashamed of what I was seeing. Like it, this was like in 2012 when it came out of Stack Overflow. I was like, surely the forum software, because we looked at forum software in 2008 when we started Stack Overflow. Because it was one of the Venn diagram circles was forum along with blog and you know Reddit and Wikipedia, and we pulled in aspects of all those. And I was I, I stopped looking because we realized like Q and A doesn't share a ton of DNA with forums. I mean, there's a little tiny bit, but it's not a huge amount. So I kind of stopped looking. But then in 2012, when it came out and people were asking me for feedback, and I was like, well, listen to your community. Then they were like, great, give me some software ideas. I started looking, and I was just like deeply ashamed of like the software that was out there for <laughs> gathering feedback from people, like just talking to your users. It was so bad. It was just embarrassing. And I was like, this can't be because I love, I believe deeply in the idea that you engage with your community, you engage with your customers, you understand their pain points. Um, it's every programmer's job to be part of support a little bit, not all the time, but like you should never be fully insulated from the mistakes you make is my point. Like yeah. if you build a software feature that's confusing, you should be suffering too. If you can build a software feature that only <laughs> Q&A gets to suffer about, then your company is broken because yeah. you're not creating the feedback loops necessary for that programmer to realize, oh my God, I'm not awesome at user interface, first of all, big picture. Second, like I got to fix this because you know all these people are getting confused by this feature that I built. And three, like, is the feature wrong? Like if a bunch of people are getting confused, maybe the feature isn't even correct. Like maybe the feature needs to be completely reconceptualized. Like how does it work? So without that feedback loop, you're really, really doomed. Um, and that's part of what discourse does, right? It's, it's a way of getting a feedback loop with your audience so that you can actually make amazing things and their feedback can be, you know, folded into your product to make it better. And we do this all the time with discourse. If you go to meta.discourse.org, and I'm not going to say we do it perfectly because I'm an imperfect person like everyone else, but we try really hard <laughs> to close those feedback loops uh, and build really useful features that don't confuse people and then are actually useful. And how can you even gauge that without interacting with your community, right? And I, I realize too, it doesn't always scale. Like if you have a huge audience like Facebook, like how do you even process that level of feedback, right? That's a whole different level of challenge. But the good news is as a small startup, you're not gonna have that much feedback. The job is not that hard at the beginning. You just have to acknowledge its importance, actually do it and you know have reasonable software for doing it. That, that was always the intention of Discourse when we started. Hmm. That's very cool. So you built Discourse, and when you started building Discourse, correct me if I'm wrong. This is this is my research, but you used a new tech stack. You were using Ruby, which you weren't familiar with, um, and 
just in general, I wanted to ask you some questions on learning. And if you're going to learn something new, what is your, what's your process for that? Well, the reason we chose Ruby, there's a blog post called Why Ruby, which gets into very detailed details. Um, but really, I had a co-founder when I started, I started researching this. And then uh, Robin Ward, who's in Toronto, has been instrumental. In this, he, he was the second person to this course. He's been hugely instrumental to everything we've done. Um, he was just much more familiar with Ruby, like it was his native stack. So that kind of made the decision for us. Hmm. Uh, because I realized early on, like, with two people at the company it's not really feasible for me to be learning something completely from scratch because <laughs> yep. I would just be bugging Robin all the time with stuff <laughs> and, and impacting his productivity. So we kind of, you know, striated at that point. It's like, well, I'll do everything that isn't programming. I'll do publicity. I'll do, um, you know, UI, you know, ev basically every other role, you know? Yeah. And I still kind of do that at the company. Like I'm trying to, I, I think the role of management in general is to, is to throw yourself on hand grenades so that other people can be productive, right? Like take things away from them that they don't need to be bothered with so they can focus, you know? Um, and I kind of still do that at Discourse. So I, I wouldn't say that I, I was in the, the mode of learning at that point. I was in the mode of, it was more like just understanding my existing strengths and uh, playing to them. I mean, yeah, many like experienced programmers struggle with the transition from you get really good at writing code, um, but then the best thing is for you to kind of stop writing code and go into more management type things. Um, so yeah, how did you deal with that? Well, it is true. Like the, the answer to a lot of problems is is less code or no code if you can get away with it. I mean, code isn't necessarily net good to the world. Um, you know, like <laughs> lines of code could be an addiction before. It's like, well, how many lines of code did you do today? Mm -hmm. How about zero, right? That might be good. Um, and I think programmers have a natural tendency to sort of over build. You know, and mm -hmm. I think that's something that we need to rein in and uh, and recognize in ourselves. Like the answer to all problems may be actually less code. It's like, how can we do this with less code? How can we do this with no code? How could we do this in a way that the user doesn't even need to think about this? Um, mm -hmm. That I think is the deeper way of conceptualizing the problem. And particularly as you get deeper in your career, I think when you're early on, I think it's, uh, Bill Gates had a famous thing where he said, as a programmer, within two years, you're as good as you're ever going to be. And I kind of agree with that. I don't mean that it's destiny, but like what I'm saying is you're better off generalizing and getting better at a variety of things rather yeah. than doubling down on things you're already good at, right? Like mm. I don't, I, I think it's better to be a bit of a generalist, to understand the business, to understand like, you know, user interface design, to understand art, to understand a, a lot of other related things rather than I'm going to be the, the most talented, best programmer that has ever existed doesn't actually serve you that well long-term, in my opinion. You don't really want to double and triple down on things you're already very good at. You want to broaden um, what you're good at and experiment and try related things. I'm not completely random things. I'm not saying you should get in a sailboat and go sail around the world. I'm not saying <laughs> that. I'm saying, think about all the things that go on in the business. There's a lot of things that go on in any functioning business and how you can contribute to those, making those yeah. better. Um, that will get you promoted way more than you wrote the best line of code I've ever seen. Yeah. <laughs> That's the honest truth, right? Yeah. Okay, cool. So we're nearly out of time. So I'd like to ask you one last question, which is kind of related to what we've just been talking about. Uh, but the question is, what in your mind separates a good software engineer from a great software engineer? I think the, the term coding horror conceptualizes that the, the, the entire answer to that question, which is to constantly realize that you are your own worst enemy despite everything you're doing, 
right? Like you're constantly working against human limitations that are not specific to you. All humans have these, you know, like you got to build systems that are resistant to bad input, build systems that are resistant to, you know, mistakes that you're going to make, mistakes that the user is going to make, mistakes that, you know, the people setting up the software are going to make. Um, that's the key insight is, is to constantly be looking in the mirror and thinking, you know, how can I make this safe for myself? How can I design around my own limitations as a human? You know, look in the mirror and see that, you know, I am the solution to and cause of all the problems that I have in my code. And that's not a <laughs> negative thing. That's actually a good thing versus this false sense of I will build this perfectly. You're never going to build it perfectly. It's not possible. I mean, no system survives contact with users. I mean, never. In fact, one of the principles of this is like, look, rather than overbuild this, let's get a V1 in front of users and we will learn so much from that V1 that like you could build for six months privately and think I'm going to build the perfect X <laughs> mm. and you will just go in these crazy directions that you don't even know are wrong because you're not getting any feedback on what you're doing. So the sooner you can get it out there and get that feedback loop going of like build, show, get feedback, change. And then just keep turning the crank on that. That's the skill, the essential skill to have. And I think understanding that loop at the center of that loop is the limitation, is the re the realization that I'm never going to do this perfectly. I'm not even going to do this great, right? The V1 is probably not going to be very good. But once I get it out there and get feedback, it'll get better. And then the more I do that, the closer I get to my goal, right? That's the thing you want to work towards, and that's the thing you want to optimize for. Fantastic. Well, Jeff, thank you so much. This has been really interesting. Yeah, great. Thanks for having me. And, uh, you know, again, utility. I hope it was useful to people. That, that's always my goal. <laughs> so that wraps up this interview. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider subscribing on Spotify, iTunes, or the platform of your choice. And thank you for listening.